Welcome to the Back in Action Podcast. Are you a weekend warrior, a current or former high-performing athlete, or do you just have questions about what a chiropractor can do for you in a rehab setting? Here, we'll dive into the world of chiropractic and exercise rehab and how they both can be utilized to get you back in action. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Back in Action Podcast. We have episode 19 for you guys today. Um, you'll probably notice an unfamiliar voice. It's going to be Connor. He hasn't been here in four weeks, three weeks, something like that. He's been, he's been been actually, actually working. So that's good. Um, but we also have James Thayer back for part two. Um, since we didn't get to finish up, uh, with him last time we ran out of time because we were on the 40 minute episodes because we couldn't afford the actual Zoom calls that are unlimited, but Austin is mooching off of his mom's work Zoom now, so now we're all set. Yeah, I don't know um, if you're allowed to p- tell people that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> cut that out then. You're going to get her fired. Yeah, it's all, she'll be all right. Um, all right, so we're going to get things going. So I actually wanted to kick us off with the first question just because um, I listened to the podcast again today, um, and one of the things, James, that I wanted to have you kind of clarify to the viewers about was towards the end of the podcast, we talked about, um, avoiding understimulation of activity. Um, can you just talk about like, number one, how do you, is there a way to kind of like, now that you've been doing this for a while to tell with your clients, like when that could be happening or what kind of cycles they're going through that could lead to understimulation of activity. And then what would you do for those clients? Yeah. So I'll kind of preface it with this. Um, the SRA curve is a fantastic visual example of understanding how our bodies adapt, how they recover to training stimuluses. And so in understanding that, you have to understand that with exercise, it training stimulus. It's the training stimulus itself prompts our body to need to go through fatigue, need to go through recovery in order to um, challenge it to change. Without that challenge to change, our body won't adapt. So starting with that and understanding that we constantly have to push our body to adapt, but we're looking at how we can do that in a minimum effective dose to allow a long a longer, a longer ability or longer duration to adapt instead of trying to push one type of stimulus or push, um, a cumulative stress to a great degree that it doesn't become manageable. Um, we can do that in the short term sometimes. And that's what I think a lot of people will kind of do and why there's a lot of switching and everything. So regardless to be mindful of the time, um, outside of that, but As far as the clarification, it's looking at, is this person still responding to what the training is? And in that response, it's looking at, are we challenging and changing things slightly enough that that person has to adapt? For example, if you, anybody listening, if they've been doing the same program for, let's say, six weeks and haven't changed anything, more than likely they're probably they probably don't have enough a stimulus at that point that they've adapted or they've long adapted to it and it's no longer challenging them i'll say that with a caveat that there are aspects as 
clinicians, as trainers, as coaches that we can look to as to what is a stimulus. For example, it can be the traditional rep sets and load when we're looking at, okay, we need to change something every week, every couple of weeks or every um, training cycle. Looking at that, um, we can also look in movement efficiency. So this will be a big one in a clinical setting. We might not change the load. We might not change the regression of the pattern. We might not change rep sets, but is that person staying in a better position? Are they moving more efficiently? There's still going to be some deviations rep to rep, but that is, again, with in the setting you're in or with years of training, understanding that can be a stimulus, but more so that there's more stimulus out there than just the traditional rep sets in load. But we do have to challenge our body. We have to challenge our clients to continue to see adaptation. Um, whenever we can see on either side of that, that we're pushing it too hard um, or they're not able to recover enough. I'll kind of go that way that that we can see declines in um, their ability to maintain sleep. Um, we can see a reduction in energy. We can see a reduction in motivation. Um, on It can kind of be the similar aspects on the other side. One is it's too easy. It's no longer... possibly the like skill acquisition development they have to they're just breezing through it without a thought without a challenge and we're not we haven't taken the program to the next step to accommodate that adaptation does that kind of answer it or i went a couple different directions no that that definitely did because that actually was gonna you pretty much answered what my next question was gonna be Fantastic. and that was something that connor and i were talking about was uh when workouts start to get boring for people like because we were just talking about like a program in general like I was saying to him if I gave him like four or five weeks of the same thing is that something that he'd get bored with but like you just said I mean changing those things like it's not all about just the rep set load um and finding ways to continue to challenge him and continue to at, adapt to things as you're going that that hit the nail on the head perfectly yeah absolutely um, I think um and just to kind of add to that whenever we're looking at progressing it that it can be simple progressions that a program doesn't have to be something new every four weeks every eight weeks that it can progress and can continue to build but i think a lot of people don't necessarily index their exercise well enough to understand that like you don't have to go from this exercise to a completely different pattern that there's ways to create um like a spectrum between exercises and continue to build. I think sometimes that's where in the fitness industry, their people get dependent on very intense programs that just the sensation of working out is the driving factor to somebody wanting to do it. Like it feels hard. It feels like I'm working out, even though if it might not be the most effective or it might be too intense for an individual or just understanding that, there's ways to progress exercise without going to the extremes of, um, you know, high level powerlifting or Olympic lifting and regress patterns or finding the way to regress and progress exercises and being kind of fluid in that. Um, an easy example, like oftentimes we'll see one of the most regressed patterns will be like the dead bug. 
But understanding whenever we're looking at progressions, we don't need to go, somebody's regressed to a pattern where they need the dead bug and it's beneficial and it's enough of a stimulus that is challenging adaptation, that it's not that, okay, now it's return to play. You're standing up, you're running, you're doing everything. It's seeing that long-term progression of, okay, does it look like a bird dog next that we're reducing the base of support for that individual? Basically, we've just flipped it upside down. Is it now looking at, can we hover and hold that position? Can we do bear crawls while holding that core stability? Can we advance that up into split stance rows? Like different aspects like that, seeing some connectivity, um, that's a way that we can look to progression without being solely dependent on weight or exclusively reps and sets. Because oftentimes people will look to load and that's kind of their go-to method is, okay, we're just going to keep adding weight, keep adding weight, keep adding weight. The issue with that is it's a finite resource in adaptability that our body can only adapt and respond to that to a certain amount. And then it it's kind of done. And that's, and oftentimes we'll see that in strength training, building up to a one rep max that it's curated for that, that we build this percent here. But here's the thing, if you're always driving load in bicep curls, not as strong as in a bench press. You have a lot more longevity in a bench press to try to take an approach where we're advancing load. Whereas some of these isolated exercises or smaller muscle groups, they don't have the ability to drive load that far. And nobody's trying to get to a one rep max or to a like three rep predicted max on some of these smaller exercise movements or isolated exercise, but they're still trying to advance it the same way that they would with a compound movement or a primary lift. Yeah. I think that's, that's a big thing too, is like you, you kind of touched upon it. And I kind of wanted to dive a little bit more into it was um, the recovery process of it, because I think a lot of people focus so much on the, the stimulus part and like the working out and feeling that they're actually doing something. But I think a lot of times people kind of drop the ball in terms of recovery. Um, I just kind of wanted your opinion on that and like how you kind of approach that with clients. Cause I know you can almost make the argument that even the programming itself or like the workout you're, you're already like planning recovery in there. So it's like, you know, maybe you're not pushing them, that hard this week but then the next week you kind of up the volume and stuff like that so i want wanted your kind of take on recovery and what what the, that's like for you yeah absolutely and i'll kind of simplify recovery to this because in our industry everything gets taken to the extremes and like optimized like what's the most ideal and most people don't operate in like an optimized setting like life isn't completely controlled where we can optimize there's a lot of chaos to our life and so as far as whenever i'm speaking to recovery with this conversation the big three focuses are sleep hydration nutrition sure there's a lot of criteria outside of that that we can always look to we can talk about um, but if you're not hitting the mark on those three everything else is just kind of a smaller smaller percent or smaller ability to recover. Whereas with hydration, with appropriate nutrition, with sleep, these are going to be huge building blocks to allow for recovery. And so through that 
recovery because with the SRA curve, it'll go training stimulus goes kind of through a, a valley where we go into fatigue and then up from there is recovery. So the big thing with that is in that little U shape going from training stimulus fatigue up to recovery and hopefully introducing a new training stimulus at the top of recovery, that if we introduce that sooner, the person hasn't had adequate time to recover. But something you spoke to uh, um, was that how you set your program up, that can help in that recovery process. Typically, recovery is going to be about 48 to 72 hours as long as you didn't create massive amount of muscle fiber tear or like greater greater like injury that maybe takes longer to recover from um but with that in setting your program or training um your workout cycle anything like that if it's done appropriately or done correctly it should have elements of recovery in it so that's where we'll and most people are kind of doing this maybe not knowing it that's where we'll look to like depending on the number of days that the person is working out that that week if if it's one day that they're working out that week we're probably going to go really hard and probably going to go full body on that one day because they have six days to recover from whenever it comes back. As we advance that, we can look to what is the spacing we have in between our training sessions is going to dictate the recoverability. So for example, if I have two days back to back, I probably am not going to do two full body days because I probably could, but you're going to accumulate a lot of stress and the demand for recoverability is going to be greater opposed to if I looked at like an upper body, lower body day that offers a greater ability to recover because we're not taxing the same muscle groups to the same intensity as if we're just repeating that same bout back to back. Now, whereas if we put a recovery day in there, it gives us more options. If we have an active rest day or recovery day, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter, but time away from the stress stimulus to reintroducing stress stimulus. So if it's a like Monday, Wednesday, we have the option, we can go upper body, lower body in our workout, or we can go two full body days because we have that recovery day on the Tuesday. Whereas if we don't have that, we need to either augment the amount of stress that we're sending in those two days, um, or we need to pick an option that allows greater recoverability. So kind of bouncing off that um, recoverability idea and just recovery in general, what are your thoughts on like a deload for individuals? Because I know some people, they kind of have them programmed into their um, whatever it is, their mesocycle. Um, but is it necessary for everyone? Should you be doing it? Um, like how, how do you approach that with your with your clients? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question and something I think we see come up quite often um, in our spaces. Personally, I don't think a deload needs programmed in if you're programming ap appropriately. So if we look at the context of a deload that it's needing to recover or more time to recover from the training stimulus that we're sending. So if like a traditional one is 
three weeks and then a deload. Three weeks and a deload, that's kind of like the set standard one or a typical one that we might see in programming. So with that, most people aren't training hard enough that they actually need that deload. So if we think about it in that context, every fourth week, we're losing the potential to progress. So in that, you know, over 12 months, that's a lot of training time that we've now lost in the potential to continue to progress. With that, again, it's kind of set standard in there. I personally, I don't think enough people train hard enough to necessarily need that deload. But on the other side of it, what it might speak to is if we're pushing if we're pushing the intensity or the training stress so much that every fourth week an individual needs that deload, can we look at operating different or can we look at programming differently that instead of sending this high amount of stress over three weeks that we need time away from that stress, can we just expand that out longer instead of having that preset deload? What I'll also say is whenever we're working with clients, if you're looking long-term, um, a lot of people kind of get into that pattern of short-term programming. Um, and that's part of the industry just because the training packages that are purchased or like the, the time allotted. But if we start thinking outside of that context and start planning or seeing our clients as, hey, this is a long-term client, I'm going to treat them as a long-term client, even if they don't re-up, I have a plan moving forward. We can start having the conversations around, hey, when's your vacation? When is like a high stress time in your life outside of the gym that that might, um, might have us looking at deloads? Typical, like in a training program, a typical deload is going to be a reduction in load and a reduction in volume. Whereas if we start planning around life events and start understanding what the stressful times with individuals look like, that's kind of what I would, I'd challenge a coach, trainer, clinician to operate around that in thinking about vacation that, Hey, if somebody's going on vacation, let's do an overreach leading up to that and then go on vacation. Don't go to the gym. Don't work out. I'm not going to program you during this time because you're doing that for a reason. Same thing with holidays. Like we don't have to, we don't have to train through these times. We can look at them and program around them. Or for myself, I work at a university and we're three weeks away from finals for students. So if I was programming for a student, I would be mindful of that time that, hey, probably not going to be eating the best, probably not going to have the best sleep. It's going to be high stress. That's not the time for us to push high stress during training. It's not to say that you can't train if that's going to be beneficial for them, if it gets them time away from the computer and studying and reduces the anxiety or the mental stress that comes with studying, we can still do that, but we're not trying to, we're not trying to peak during that time because that's just doubling down on stress, but knowing that individual and kind of knowing the times with a lot of the population that I'll see at a, in a university setting, we can start making decisions around how we program based on what that individual's life is and where the high stress times are and where the low stress times are. If we're looking like to relate it to um, athletes, 
and looking at, let's say, in-season and out-of-season, we have a greater ability to drive more stress in a training sense during off-season than in-season. Because in-season, that's where performance to the game or to the match, that's where that becomes the priority. And that's going to accumulate a lot more stress during that time. Whereas in the off-season, we have greater recoverability because the practice isn't going to be as frequent or it's not going to be as intense that we have more options during that time. So treating it kind of similar in knowing what, what that person's life looks like, where the high stress times are, where the low stress times are, because oftentimes that's going to coincide with more recoverability or less recoverability and kind of programming around those times and making decisions when to drive more stress or when to drive less stress. Yeah, and I think that like deload weeks have been so kind of bastardized by people that are like, oh, well, I just have to PR all the time just so I can do one week of my deload. But even then, it's I feel like that from personal experience just leads to more more burnout because I've been lifting heavy for these three weeks and it's like, okay, now I have to go back and do active recovery or deload and all of that. So I'm just wondering how you combat, like, I know you see it a lot in teenage boys of, I just have to lift heavy weights every single time I go there, I have to PR it's, I'm not going to the gym if I'm not hitting a PR, but I just wondered how you would go about kind of teaching them the ways of programming properly. Yeah. So that's a great question, Connor. And it is something that I see a lot and it, it starts to be that Luckily, I work in a setting where education is kind of the driving force behind what we're trying to do in our facility. So it offers that opportunity to try to have more educational conversations and people that are interested in being educated on the on some of the aspects. It's a little bit harder in some other settings. Um, but with that, kind of starting the question or starting the conversation oftentimes is I'll ask them questions. I'll get them to kind of reflect on, hey, why are you doing this? It's like, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your goal here? And then from there, can kind of start opening up additional questions. So for example, um, I'll see a lot of people coming into the space doing, wanting to work towards a one rep bench press, but doing kind of the traditional bigger, faster, stronger high school program where it's like, okay, I did 12, I did eight, I did six. I did four and never get close to one rep practicing that, that they're kind of always building up from that. So it's a simple conversation of, okay, if you want to do the most amount of weight for one rep, you have to practice lifting for one rep because doing 12 reps and doing one rep, not only is the load going to be different, but your technique is very different. How you're conserving energy is going to be different and how you navigate through the position with that additional load. So first kind of starting out is like, what's the goal? Like, is your goal actually to lift one rep or is it, Hey, I want a big chest. Then it's a different conversation where, Hey, maybe bench press isn't the best option here when we can look at dumbbells when we can look at machines that are more externally stabilized when i don't know if you guys can hear my dog but apologies for that um probably a cat in the yard um but yeah we can look at is it strength is it hypertrophy is there a different goal is it body fat 
percent because all three of those are different conversations in how we might approach how we might adjust the program if it's strength okay we actually need to practice heavy load and we need to practice doing singles doubles triples we can't always just start at this 12 eight six and just constantly add load to those and expect that whenever we come over to one rep max it's just magically going to be there you've probably gotten stronger but if you're not actually practicing, like it kind of gets into the said principle of the specific adaptation. So we're trying to specifically adapt to a one rep max, not a 12 rep. If it's hypertrophy, looking at the implement that, hey, you can't go through a greater range of motion because your chest is in the way of a bar where a dumbbell, a cable, a machine all maybe offer better options because we can go through greater range of motion. We can go through more time under tension. We can drive more metabolic stress. Or if it's fat loss, like, hey, we need to start having conversations around nutrition. This workout isn't necessarily going to do it. It's great that you're active and it's an important key into building muscle mass and kind of a an component to it, but it's not exclusively it. So in starting that kind of the conversation of what are you, what you're doing and what's your goal and do these things align. And if they don't align, let's talk about how to get you on a better path. If it is there, but there's still some education, it's okay. How can we make better decisions? How can we make better options? And part of that conversation to bring it back around is it's not going off program. It's following the program and it's not trying to just max randomly and expect that, Hey, it's there because I decided on a Thursday at 6 PM that today's the day I'm going to max whenever I haven't touched this load ever. It's like, yeah, I haven't touched this load, but I'm going to jump 50 pounds higher than what I've been doing and just send it. The like, It'll happen a lot, but, but again, that's where looking to, Hey, here's an opportunity that we can initiate the conversation or can, can talk about better strategies that will help you reach what your goal is. So kind of a segue into that, like one thing that I think you posted about it before was, um, the energy system training. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you just kind of like briefly tell the viewers exactly what that is, like just in terms of everything you kind of went over? Yeah. Yeah. So whenever we're looking at the energy systems that we utilize, so is it going to be, um, ATP, uh, phosphagen creatine? Is it going to be the glycolytic system? Is it going to be oxidative system? Why this is important? Because each of those has a different time or a work to rest ratio difference. It's a different energy system that we're utilizing. So the strategy in the duration that we're going to spend in that approach is going to be different. And kind of back to like, what's the goal of this, that each one of those might have a different alignment of what we're actually doing if we're working within this energy system, or if we're working outside of it. Um, I'll kind of use the example well, it was years ago, but Andy Galpin gave a fantastic example of thinking about energy systems. So shout out to Andy Galpin. Uh, I think you can find it on YouTube that he speaks to this, but um, he was talking about the three energy systems, thinking about a match. So whenever you light a match, it doesn't last very long. It burns really, really hot, 
but it's a short duration. And that's kind of our um, ATP phosphagen creatine system that's thinking of things like the 40 meter dash, thinking of like a one rep max, things that it's the most readily available energy source that we're going to use, but it's very finite. We're very limited in our ability to continue to work at this rate or at this capacity for a set duration. And then typically most, um, most literature is going to say around 10 seconds, then we start seeing a drop off. That's why, like I always like whenever we talk about energy systems, um, whenever I was younger, did track. And so track is a lot of times where this is studied, but it's great examples if somebody's familiar with track, because the strategy that you use for a 100 and a 200 are completely different. The strategy that you're going to use to run a 40 yard dash to a 400 meter is completely different. And that kind of highlights the energy systems. When we look at the glycolytic, that's going to be, you know, it's past that 10 seconds up to 30 seconds, maybe longer, depending on what the activity is. And then with the oxidative, it's going to be minutes into it. But why that's important, because each one is going to dictate not only the duration that we can spend in that energy system, but also the intensity or the work capacity that we can be in we in the initial in that atp and i kind of went off the rails and didn't even describe the other two examples that galpin gave so he gave a match uh for glycolytic gave like a piece of paper burning that it's a longer duration it takes more time for that piece of paper to burn than the match and the last was logs that that's going to be our oxidative system that is kind of a lower yield, lower intensity fire, but it can go for a long time. It can keep you warm overnight. Whereas good luck on a match trying to stay warm for outside of a couple seconds and outside of your fingers. So in that, knowing the work capacity that we can operate in, knowing the, um, the force that we can produce within those durations, those can dictate how we're utilizing those systems and developing strategies. Um, lifting wise, I'll give the example. So if we're doing doubles, how we're, how we're going to drive, um, a double rep to, again, let's say squats. If, if I have you do two reps on a squat opposed to, I want you to do 20 thinking very, very differently, how you're going to approach those sets where two reps, you're like, okay, I can, I can probably just explode through this. I'll stay tight. You might not even have to think about how you breathe. You might just think, okay, I need a brace, but you're not conscious of breathing. Whereas do 20 squats, get five in, get 10, get 15. You're very, very conscious of, okay, do I need, do I need to rest here? Do I need to hold this position? Do I need to take a second? So in that we've switched over the energy systems that we're using. And oftentimes it's kind of talked about in isolation, but realize with these energy systems, it's not like on off switch. We're like, okay, this one's working. This one's not. It's more so percent ratios that like, okay, a large amount in a 40 meter is going to be our ATP. That is going to be that short duration. It might be 99% of it's from here, but the longer that extends, that ratio starts going down and it starts evolving in the other two. So it's always this sliding scale. And part of that's going to be the work capacity that we can 
that we can continue to work at that we've all probably you know whether it was a mile run in school or a longer duration but you've probably done something where like you've been working at a high capacity or even lifting like if it's if it is those higher reps it you know solid reps working high or jogging at a certain pace and then you start feeling just slowing down you can't bring it back up that energy system's depleting and it needs time to recover. And so we lean more on the other systems that have this lower yield and work capacity, but have more infinity to go for a longer duration, such as the oxidative system where we can use that for a long, long time, um, but the output is going to be much, much lower. So kind of uh, going off of that, just want to get your opinion on this. And I just kind of came up with it. So hopefully the question makes sense. Yeah. Um, so when making a program for someone, let's say you have a, uh, a basketball player and you have a football player, a lineman and a point guard. Um, when making a program for those two specific athletes, do you still put their goals first with what they want to accomplish when making the program? Or at that point, does the energy system outweigh the goals because obviously those sports are kind of different in terms of basketball. You're going to be, you need to be more explosive for short durations. Whereas the lineman's going to be able, going to have to just be able to withstand more. I guess it's kind of explosive in a way too, but more endurance based in being able to like hold back a certain amount of weight and all that. So my ultimate question again, though, was do the goals kind of, get not pushed to the side, but do the energy systems outweigh them at that point? Or is it still something that they're going to have to be intertwined together pretty much? Yeah. So it's going to have to be intertwined. What I'll say with it is like the goal is always going to matter because that's where we put priority to what we're doing. And with that, it also allows for some type of investment, some type of investment, autonomy, motivation for the individual. The reason they want to do this is because their goal. It's this their goal. This is what they're trying to accomplish. This is why they're coming to you to try to achieve this. So it always needs to be a factor. But once we have that goal, that's where as professionals, we're looking at how to set those priorities and how to utilize the systems that our energy system shouldn't be a limitation. It should just help inform us to make better decisions in how we're going to operate or how we're going to prioritize things. So for example, like with, um, with the basketball player and with the football player, the basketball player is going to need more of an oxidative capacity. They're going to have to go for longer durations. Sure. They're going to have to, um, it's a lot of start stop, but they're going to have to go for long durations. Whereas the typical football play, I think it's less than six seconds. And the linemen may be going, you know, five yards. Like linemen typically aren't going to go very far. It kind of changes O-line, D-line. But regardless. Yeah, that was probably a really shitty example. No, but. no it's, it's a fantastic example because we can look at, okay, what are we trying to accomplish and what is our gonna, what's going to be our focus? Um, so with the basketball player, I'm um, going to need a lot of hand-eye coordination. We need to keep in mind the skill of the sport, depending on if we're in season, out of season, it still needs to be a priority, whether that's in the training session with you or outside of the training session, something that they can do on their own, thinking about like ball handling, shooting, things like that. Um, but 
what are some things that they need? They need to be reactive. They need to be able to, um, we're probably looking at their ability to explode off the floor. So looking at like more vertical power. Um, Most basketball players, a lot of them don't necessarily like lifting heavy weights. And if you're working with somebody at a higher level, they're probably really tall and it's really hard to go low. So if you're thinking like, you know, six foot five, a six or a seven foot person, like that person doesn't want to squat down to parallel or below parallel. So thinking about that of like, we're probably also, if, if we're looking at sports specificity with these two individuals, we've probably gone wrong. If this person is for some reason squatting below parallel, So that might not be a priority. Whereas if we look to the lineman needs in, we'll go with O-line, but in his stance, he's going to get below parallel. So that's a position he's going to be exposed to. He needs a lot of power in his legs, in his arms. So traditionally we'll see with the bench press, with the squat, how those kind of assist with that individual we can look to rest ratio times and kind of pair that with um, how he's recovering. If we need to like very easily, if we're not, that this should be the standard. I'll say this, especially in the off season, but if, if we want to get it real close to conditioning for the sport, we can look at, okay, what's the typical break time between plays. It's probably like a minute or so, or even more between a football play. So, six seconds in the duration and then have a recoverability of a minute or two. Whereas a basketball player, the recoverability is timeouts. Like there's not this, okay, we have to reset. Like in football, there's this built-in rest to recovery. That's why we're training or we'd focus more on explosive power off the floor, the ability to absorb force because there's fast change in direction with the basketball player. There's going to be more uh, demand of, the glycolytic oxidative system because they're going for longer durations and because they don't have those preset breaks in game time like football would. So, and that we still want goals. And if it is, um, if it's sports specific, it helps that, okay, performance is the goal. So the things you're trying to accomplish, we also need to keep in mind what's this performance-based goal because you play a sport. So that is going to factor in, but we need to consider what the rest to recovery time is, what the energy systems that are being utilized. By the same note, like we can look within the sport at individual positions that a wide receiver and a lineman probably don't need to train exactly the same. There can be some crossover with it, but because of the positions being so different, there are going to be different demands if we're trying to train this person to benefit their sport and their position. Hopefully that answered your question or at least. No, got it, the it, I, yeah, no, it absolutely did. That was awesome. Um, just cause like, that was something that I always kind of, um, cause I played college basketball, but we all trained the exact same, like the center compared to the point guard, like the training was all, um, pretty much equal but the reason I wanted to ask that though was because I I know other people that like in their sports and everything like they didn't train the exact same and I always kind of like wondered why that was 
Um, so I was just curious if that energy system thing played any role into programming, but I'm not going to lie to you. My college strength and conditioning coaches probably didn't even, don't even know what ATP is. So, so but that's another rabbit yeah, hole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, I'll say this, it should play in because it is a factor and it can only help in that decision making in training in program. But I'll say on, it's not going to be universal. It should be. It's talked about in the certifications and like in any realm that somebody is training other people, it's talked about. But as far as like how it's utilized and stuff, because there comes in additional factors of, hey, you're training 50 athletes. So some, you'll hear some programs where like, Maybe the the coach um, was kind of on top of it. They, they created a lot of exposure in their education and they looked to, hey, how can I take, be very sports specific and give these different positions different needs? Or you'll run on the other side where there's 10 sports at this university and every single athlete across all 10 sports has the exact same training program you'll get that whole gambit. Right. Yeah. I feel like, and that's the other thing too. I feel like they just throw the whole kitchen sink too. Like I, I know with mine, like nothing was really like structured. It, every time we went in, especially in the off season, it was, everything was different every day we went in. Um, but I don't know. Hopefully there's a change coming with all that. So, um, but boys, did you guys have anything else? Um, no, I was, that was great. I don't have anything. I, I had one that just came to me, like just kind of circling back to the energy systems and branching off that. But with some of your people who are just kind of, you know, looking to get in shape, like maybe not have any specific athletic goals, do you see any value in kind of training across all three of the different energy systems with them? Or do you spend time um, in all three of those? Yeah. So as far as like GPP, general population, the not being limited is always going to be beneficial. It doesn't have to take be taken to the extreme of a max rep or like a um, VO2 max or like some of you know some of these more like exercise science or some of these more performance based goals that we're trying to achieve. But for an individual creating that just wants general health, let's say that that there are advantages because we operate in those energy systems throughout life and throughout our day. So whenever we can, whenever we can pair that and kind of make common sense of that training, it's helpful. So for example, any type of plyometrics is going to work in that ATP system. It's very reactive, very responsive. When we're looking at that in everyday life, it's going down hills. It's, you know, hiking, whenever you have to go up, whenever you have to go down, if you have to jump up for something like the exposure of that, not only to the energy system, but also the positions, the ability to absorb force, the ability to um, stabilize and maintain alignment, like that's going to reduce injury risk. Whenever we're looking at the um, like other energy systems, we can look at like where we can push that intensity. We can talk about like with the oxidative system, talk about step counts. We can talk about challenging the person to get their heart rate up, that there's health benefits of 
getting your heart rate up and it not just being at like base level and never necessarily being challenged. And also if there is a stressful situation, if you do have to react, if you do have to respond, that there is carryover into being mindful of how we're developing a program or how we're prioritizing where exercise falls or the operation order because we're still using those in everyday life. And whenever we can, for an individual that isn't performance-based, where it's more just that general health, where we can start pairing these and we can start giving that person less limitations or give them strategies to better navigate the world, um, I think there can be a huge benefit um, to people. It's, it's kind of the same thing with whenever we're looking at exposing positions, whenever we're looking at working through different planes of motion. Um, I'm sure you guys will experience a lot in clinical setting, but low back injuries. So a lot of that is, think about it, that it's setting in a stationary position for long durations because maybe you haven't built up the capacity to maintain a more dynamic posture. Or you're not moving a lot because you're tired or you're not sleeping, but also looking at, okay, so if we're giving them a program, can we make something that brings them into other range of motions that allows them to brace, allows them to move through the frontal plane, through the transverse plane? Can we challenge these energy systems so whenever they get tired that they're not just falling into like not ideal positions or that they're compensating through their lumbar spine? We can look at how to bridge that gap so training isn't just, hey, this one-off thing that we do, but it's helping helping that individual um, give them more options, give them the a better ability to do things outside of the gym in their life. This is why I think it becomes a lot more apparent in elder population because this whenever we start talking about the difference of falling and breaking your hip and the potential, what, 70, 80%, maybe 64, somewhere around there. Don't quote me on the percent, but um, the percent of people that pass from breaking a hip in, a, in the first year of that, or that you're no longer able to stay at your home because you're not independent enough to do the small things for yourself. Whereas it becomes a greater priority towards that end of life or towards the later stages but if we can start doing those things now we never ne now have to respond to all this that we've lost over several decades it's no it's just a continuation of exposure over decades and allowing for more longevity greater independence and the ability to do more things if they choose to that they can go on vacations they can go to you know, the ballpark and don't have to worry about climbing 200 stairs like that's not a limitation for them. So in their life, even going out and like doing yard work and not being afraid that if I move slightly like this, now I'm down for two weeks because my back hurts. So those energy systems, again, they should be paired with it. They should kind of coincide that it doesn't have to necessarily be top priority. This is the only thing, but it also, it should be a consideration and help us, if done appropriately, make decisions on what we're trying to achieve with that exercise or with that movement in the rep sets load that we're providing it. Like for kind of back to the sport example, just to hopefully wrap this, that if I want somebody to be 
quick off the floor and I want very good quality jumps, I'm not going to give them 20 jumps. It's like, okay, we're, we're probably going to do five and we're going to have rest time in between because I'm looking at the quality of this movement and I'm trying to get the max amount of force production or velocity um, in this. Same thing with, with sprinting. I'm trying to look at that acceleration and trying to get the best quality of this. I'm not just trying to tax your energy system so your 40 second or 40 yard dash that you know maybe in the low fours that it's now looking at sixes because we've run 20 of these and you're just too fatigued you haven't recovered that we're looking at okay this should help us make those decisions and how we're creating this program and how it's helping this individual accomplish their goals Awesome. Well, we thank you again for coming on and doing a part two with us. And I mean, it seems like we always have something to talk about. It's always educational. So why don't we let you give a shout out to your socials and everything, and then we'll get out of here. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate all of you having me on, Connor. It was great to meet you. Um, if you, anybody listening to this want to have more conversations, you can find me at uh, there, T H A Y E R 2513. Um, that's my social media, or um, my other page that's linked on it. Byproduct Performance is my um, company that I'll do stuff through. And if you are um, a part of Prescript, the collective, anything like that, um, you can find me on Sunday Labs. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you all. I always appreciate these conversations. <laughs>